Well, good evening and welcome to the sixth episode of Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. Joining me once again is David Scott. Welcome to the program, David. I'm delighted to be here, Mike. Now that we left it last time asking about the downsides of debt and instability that may come from debt, we thought we might look at how the banking system works, uh, how fractional reserve system works as an issue, uh, the types of money uh, that are in circulation and about central banking. So I think we'll start with the the types of money uh, because this is a hugely fascinating area. Of course, the various types of money are described beginning with a capital M. Um, so we have M0, M1, M2, M3, M4, and each of them has definitions. And some countries use some of them and some countries use others. So if we take the United Kingdom as an example, there are only two measures of money in the UK. M0 is called wide monetary base, or it could be called narrow money. So it's both wide and narrow. And M4 is referred to as broad money or the money supply. So M0 in the UK is is notes and coin. I think cash is M0 in the UK, but it's M1 in Japan and it's M1 in the Eurozone. So that's all very clear. And, uh, and so the other one in the UK is M4, which is cash outside the banks in circulation. So M0, notes and currency, uh, notes and coin, sorry, in circulation, uh, plus reserves from the banks that are held in the Bank of England. And then M4 is cash outside the banks, plus what is being described as private sector retail bank and building society deposits, plus private sector wholesale bank and building society deposits and certificates of deposit. So that, that David, should be immediately clear to everybody what all that means. The, the clarity is spectacular. You can, you can cut the clarity with a knife. And, and it, it raises the question, why do we need so many definitions? Right? Did we not know what money, what money is and what money means? And the answer is, of course, no, it's far too complicated. Uh, and we need multiple definitions. And of course, each one brings different things in, and some then take us into fractional reserve banking. So the difference between M0 and M4 in the UK, a huge part of that is the money created by the the private banks, commercial banks, uh, in giving loans. And that money is, is money based on debt. It's money created by debt, which is a very strange thing akin to the, some of the current theories for how the universe came into being um, when there was no sort of first cause. And people saying, well, you know, what about conservation of, of mass energy? There was nothing. How can there then be something? And the argument is, well, some of the something's positive and some of the something's negative and on average it's zero. So it's, it's zero before and it's zero now. That's kind of where fractional reserve banking ends up in this strange other, other world of positive money and negative money and the, the two actually will cancel one another out. It's a strange world, um, even stranger than some of the more outlandish theories coming out of physics and astronomy. It's an, an explanation of how nothing can generate wealth. Um, now, at the end of uh, the last program, uh, you made the point that uh, M3 uh, which, of course, is one of the measures in the United States, is no longer published. Well, in fact, the Federal Reserve uh, announced that they would stop publishing those statistics in 2005. Now, when you go and look at the M3 definition, well, M3 is M2 plus other large-time deposits, institutional money, and so on. When you go and look then at the definition of M2, well, that's M1 plus savings accounts and money market accounts and so on. And then M1 is the total amount of M0, which is cash and coins outside the private banking system, plus the amount of deposits, traveler's checks and other checkable deposits in the United States. So that should be equally clear to people. But what was interesting was that 
M3 from 2005 was no longer published, the statistics for that. But equally, in the UK, well, we don't use M3, so that we didn't need to stop publishing those statistics. Uh, but in 2006, when the Bank of England introduced the money market reform, what they called money market reform, they ceased publication of M0 and instead published a series of balances that are relatively meaningless. You can argue about how much of what we've just discussed has got any meaning, but nonetheless, uh, we seem to be pretty keen to, to stop publishing certain types of t- statistics. I wonder if you've got any thoughts on why that might be. Well, the cynical amongst us, um, Mike, uh, would suggest that the reason for this is, in fact, that having stated their policy in terms of these, uh, these, these measures of money, when they start to go in the wrong direction, when they start to perhaps give an indication that there's rampant inflation going on, then we really don't want the statistics to be out there causing embarrassment because the statistics will be demonstrating that the previously stated objective is not being met. And it's uh, it's terribly embarrassing for the likes of Bank of England or the Fed if they have to be consistent in such matters. You know, if they feel that uh, in matters such as these are... Uh, a good memory is unforgivable, and they want to forget their previous commitments to price stability and preserving the value of money and move on. So there is a reason, a, a political and a PR reason, for not publishing these uh, statistics anymore. When we talk about M- M0, we're talking about cash and coin and circulation. And one of the things that uh, a lot of people don't appreciate about cash and coins in circulation is uh, that whenever cash is printed, it's in fact sold to commercial banks at face value. And that the money which is raised from that sale, so let's say, for example, we sell, or we, we print uh, a million pounds worth of £10 notes. Uh, we sell that million pounds worth of £10 notes to NatWest Bank. They pay the Treasury a million pounds, and the Treasury then makes a profit of a million pounds minus the cost of production of the notes. Why isn't that happening for all money that's created? What I'm interested in investigating at this point, David, is where you see the pros and cons. But I mean, because I appreciate that there's a conversation to be had about the 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 about fractional reserve banking, and there's another conversation to be had about governments printing money through the uh, Royal Mint and the and the Bank of England in terms of coins and notes. But obviously, there's a benefit to the Treasury of whatever the amount of money is that you're printing minus the production costs to create money that way, whereas there's no benefit to the Treasury by allowing banks to create money in the way that they do. So let's just have a conversation, a delve into the pros and cons of each of these uh, situations. And in fact, I'm quite willing to accept that there are no pros to either. Well, just before we get into the, we print paper money and, and we assign it value, which is what the Treasury is doing. It's worth remembering that that's not always what they were doing. The issue with money is it, it derives its value from the fact that it is recognised as having value by previous generations. So it derives its value from its track record. And that used to make, mean specie, that used to mean gold and silver. Now, when I was a small boy, my father had realised that the, the, there was a, a lot of uh, devaluation of the coin going on. Um, and had a large tin, sort of quality street type tin, full of silver coins that he'd, he'd got out of his change over the years. Um, well, it's interesting that you say that because because it looks like people are starting to do that again on the basis that it is a, a physical impossibility to actually get your hands on real silver coins 
at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. So there was, there was Florins and Sixpence and tiny little silver thropney bits and all this sort of thing before a certain date had a silver value. And and this tin of loose change, um, by the time I remember, it had grown in value about 40 or 50 times over, over face value because of the silver content. Now, the reason for that was the value of money was falling compared to the silver standard where you've, you've got limited supply and there's a few things that are fixed. And the reason the value of money was falling was, was it was, was more money was being created and it was taking value from the existing money stock without that link to something which government can't manipulate, gold and silver being the more normal ones, then th- there is always the likelihood of devaluation. So when you get paper money, initially it's, paper money as a convenient token so that you can reclaim that amount, that pound in, in silver coins with silver in them worth that amount. So initially when the paper's put forward, it's put forward, well, you know, if you're going to carry a whole pound around in silver, that'll wear a hole in your pocket. It's very inconvenient. And, you know, for, for your convenience, we will give you this paper bill. But if you want to take that in and, and change it into crowns or half crowns with the, with the equivalent value, in which there is actual silver metal, you can do that. You know, it's just a token. It's just for your convenience. And then after that's established, then the silver content's reduced and it's reduced and then it's eliminated. And now the the coins are worth almost nothing. I'd like to just investigate a little bit more of this because, you know, you are accusing paper notes of being tokens. But on what basis are you saying that a silver coin is not a token because it seems like a token to me. Um, and uh, my second related question to that is, is the fact that the silver coin appears to have lost value, or sorry, it, it, takes more, it takes more paper money to buy your silver coin, so it's gained value. Is that because the, the paper money has actually devalued or is that because there's something else going on with the value of the metal itself? Okay, that's a very interesting question. Yes, it is because the paper money's devalued. Um, uh, it, on the column once or twice, I've given us a point of comparison. What it takes to buy a sovereign, because a sovereign was a pound. It's just it's around about a quarter of an ounce of gold. And when that was initially minted, and for about a hundred years thereafter, that was a pound. You had three hundred pounds. You could you could take them to a bank. You could get three hundred gold sovereigns, and you could you, you know that you could have that as your form of money. That was a, a, but that a, but that was simply because somebody made that decision. And then yes. at some point, somebody made the decision that, that these things were not the same anymore. Yeah, well, they didn't exactly make the decision. What they made the decision was it would be better to have a lot more paper tokens. So let's print some more paper tokens. And then there's a devaluation of the paper relative to the, relative to the gold. So it's, it's not a decision so much as a consequence. So you have a, a gold sovereign worth a pound. You have now um, you need something like three hundred and fifty pounds to buy the same coin, right? What has happened is the paper money has gone down by ninety nine point whatever percent. Now the reason we know it's that way is you can compare it to other things. Um, if you went in uh, one hundred and fifty years ago and you wanted a you wanted a tailored three piece suit made for you, you could get that with one gold ounce. And you can get that same suit today for the same one gold ounce. The, 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 the purchasing power of the gold has stayed pretty stable. 
the purchasing power of the paper pound note has gone down by well over 99%. Okay. Um, Now, it could actually be worse than that, couldn't it? Because the truth is that the sovereign, the gold, particularly gold itself is manipulated, its value or it's, sorry, no, it's price is manipulated because there's so much paper issued in the name of gold at the moment. Well, this, this is absolutely true. There's something like 100 claims to every ounce of gold. Um, so there's vast amounts of what's termed paper gold, which is certificates claiming to represent some sort of gold backing, than there is actual gold. And it's something like 100 to 1. So what's the true value of gold? Well, if we, were to, if we were to go back to a gold standard, the calculation's been done, and if you put it in as something like 40% fractional reserves and you base it on just the official gold, the gold in official hands, not, not privately owned, you, you get something like $10,000 an ounce. Okay, so, so your point is that at, in the past, um, one gold sovereign, a quarter of an ounce of gold, was worth one pound. It is no longer the case uh, because paper money has been or money has the money supply has been increased. Now that has happened over the years in a number of different ways. Uh, cash notes in circulation have increased. Uh, that situation has got significantly worse since the reins came off fractional reserve banking, and and as more and more electronic money has been created. Of course, I'm not, when I talk about electronic money, I'm not talking about cryptocurrencies or some something like that. I'm talking about what was originally, I suppose, a line item and a ledger at the bank, but has been computerized. And so they, can, they are just creating new line items in the ledgers as they see fit. Now, we talked a little bit about this uh, a week or two ago, where you were using the, the fractional uh, reserve of, of 10 to 1, which I'm not really sure anybody actually abides to that. I'm sort of more on the US side of things. In this country, it's even worse. Uh, and you were saying that actually in, in across the whole of Europe, it's even worse than that. Well, let's 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 just explore a little bit about the, the the wonderful arcane world of fractional reserve banking. And just before we get there, you mentioned one of the ways that the, the currency is to base is, is printing more more notes, which is true, but a relatively minor way. Another way is is that the Bank of England creates money digitally and injects it into the economy and it's this is usually done by buying government debt back from the bank so the banks hold their assets in terms of gilts and government debt and when the government wants to goose the economy it, the bank of england goes buys that so that the banks have now got cash reserves which they can then lend out which you think well okay but remember, it's it's fractional reserves, and this is this, this is high-powered money that's going in. So you're multiplying 10, 20, 30 times the money that the Bank of England puts in can be lent out by the banks. So a vast amount of the credit expansion, the money supply expansion, is actually via the commercial banking system. And and the way that it happens is really quite bizarre. And some some aspects of it, you're looking and you think, can it can it really be that? Because is that really what they're doing? One of the aspects of this that makes all banks inherently insolvent, incidentally, is that when you go and you put money on deposits into a bank, and it's, a, it's what you call a demand deposit, so you can go in at any point and demand your money back, the bank has that, and you have an account, and you think you have got maybe a £1,000 in this bank. But the bank will also take £900 or maybe a little more, and lend it to someone else at interest. The money's now in two places, and it's not £1,000, it's £1,900 that people think they have. And of course, 
the £900 then gets deposited in the whoever's borrowed it into his bank and, and they lend out £810 or whatever the, the proportion is. And, and on it goes. So you then multiply, you know, if it's, if it's a 10% fractional reserve, you multiply it tenfold, you know, and in Europe, perhaps, perhaps much more. You've got multiple claims on this money. That's one way that it kind of creates money out of thin air. Another aspect, if you look at this from the borrower, the borrower goes in and thinks of borrowing money from the bank, but they're not. If you go and you, you get a bank loan or you get a mortgage, have a look at whose signature's on the contract. There's only one. It's yours. No one signs from the bank. The paperwork says information you need to know about your loan, not our loan to you, your loan. Who are you borrowing from? Yourself. It's you're a promissory b- note. You're borrowing from your future self. So you go in and you say, right, I want to buy, let's say I want to buy a Jaguar, right? Because I quite fancy a Jaguar today and I want to buy a Jaguar, uh, but I, I haven't got the 35,000 pounds I need. And the bank decides that you're good for the money and says sign here. And you sign in a bit of paper for your loan. That signature creates the 35,000 pounds. The 35,000 pounds didn't exist it had potential because the bank were not fully loaned up. So they were allowed under the rules to create that money, but the money was not created. The money did not exist. Your signature created the money. So, so this is a very important point because, because many, many people think that uh, when they go into that bank and ask for that £35,000 to buy the Jaguar, uh, that the bank is giving them something that they already have of their own and that you're then repaying something that you were lent by the bank with a bit of interest because the bank deserves to earn a little bit, little bit of money for the effort that has gone to in lending you that money over that period of time. But in fact, they lent you nothing at all. Yes, yes, there's, no, there's nothing. And when you then, you know, you work hard and you, you, you earn money and you, you take some of that money and you pay down the loan, the money that goes in to pay down the loan means that the, the money, the total money in circulation falls by the amount you pay in. You actually extinguish the loan. You destroy the money by paying back the loan. The signature creates the money, and when you pay the loan back, that destroys the money. It's a bizarre system where money is debt. You're borrowing it from your future self. It's all based on promissory notes. And when you pay that back, you, you feel I'm paying the loan off, so I owe less to the bank, so the bank should have more. But the bank doesn't really care, and, and, the, and the total supply of money is less. So this, is, this gets to very strange situations. I mean, one thing is the bank run, a glorious thing to behold. Any, anybody who didn't have money in Northern Rock will attest to. For everyone's seen, I'm sure, the, you know, it's a wonderful life film and and there's there's a bank run in there and and everyone comes down to the the trade the the savings and loan and say you're not good for your money i want my money now and was it jimmy stewart said no 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 you can't have your money because your money's in frank's house and and your money's in 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 janice's jaguar and 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 they all get angry because they can't get the money now that's the situation with every bank because no, no bank has the same time horizon on the lending as it does on the deposits, or very few, because you know, most of the deposits are demand deposits. They can be demanded any time. If they have to liquidate loans to pull the money in, that will take months or years. So they're inherently insolvent. Something I'd like to ask you about is this. Is the issue fractional reserve lending as a system, or is the issue 
the use to which the credit is put. For example, if I have a spectacularly good business idea and I go to my high street bank, and it used to be you could go to the bank manager who probably knew your entire banking history because you banked with one branch for quite some time, and he could make a decision about about whether he was going to take a a punt on you and your business based on your business plan and also you and your reputation, which he probably knew personally. Of course, that doesn't apply anymore. but, But anyway, getting back to the point, if you have a business idea and that £35,000 or £70,000 or £200,000 or whatever it happens to be is lent to you at interest uh, and used for a productive purpose uh, because you've got a business idea which is uh, um, actually doing something useful, you're borrowing that money for a period of time, you're using it, you're paying it back and you've just described that as being a process of creation of use and then of destruction again. But the use part has generated assets in the meantime. So it's not using the money to, um, to, to, buy, to buy a Jaguar and enjoy that for a couple of years and then sell it on and, or crash it or whatever it is that you do. You're actually doing something productive with it. Does that help or is that equally bad? A couple of things. Money's fungible, so it's impossible to control all the places it goes. It's like aircon in a room. The air tends to go where the air will go. Uh, Fractional reserve banking is at the heart of the business cycle, the boom and bust cycle, because what you're doing is you're expanding credit. So there's artificial, this this is safe, this is borrowing not based on saving. If it's borrowing based on saving, if people are saying, I, I want to save for the future, I'm going, to, I'm going to not consume real resources now, I'm going to take those and I'm going to save them for the future because I want, I want to have more in the future, then that's consistent with a signal being sent to businesses to take a more longer term, roundabout, but overall more efficient way of manufacturing so that there are more things in the future, so that everything's coordinated. What fractional reserve banking does is it breaks that. It, it, it creates uh, borrowing based on nothing, based on thin air. And then that stokes uh, inflationary pressures, it causes a boom, and then when there's not enough real resources, that collapses into a bust, which is the business cycle, the credit cycle, the boom and bust cycle. So I I would say that the whole system is inherently harmful, as well as being inherently fraudulent, because essentially making money out of thin air is... If, well, if you did it, it'd be counterfeiting, and we are all meant to be equal in the common law jurisdiction. And I think you should have every bit as much right to do, to um, counterfeit as as your local high street bank, or indeed the Bank of England, which is of course no right at all. But you know, that's not the way it is. They they have a special privilege, a special privilege granted by politicians, and there's other issues in that because the reason those special privileges are granted by politicians is it serves the interest of those same politicians. We talked earlier on about about paper money. Now, in the early days where paper money was unusual and specie, you know, gold and silver was the norm, when was paper money introduced? Well, in almost every case, it was introduced when we wanted a war or someone wanted a war. If you look at the early years of... um, of America, both both before and after uh, what's called the Revolutionary War, paper money was introduced to fund warfare, to fund campaigns, particularly unsuccessful campaigns, because then you needed more paper money. And it always caused inflation. So what they were doing was 
stealing value from all existing money, stealing value from the entire population to fund a war generated by a set of political object objectives that wasn't shared necessarily by the population that was then being had having the wealth extracted from them to pay for it. And if you look at any major war, the first thing that would happen, that obviously now no one's on any sort of uh, standard or anything now, it's just PhD standards, all just, just about confidence. But up until very recently, whenever you had a war up to, and including the Vietnam War, what would happen is convertibility into gold or into silver would be stopped and it would be just paper money. And this was to pay for destruction. You've got the boom and bust cycle, but there are other downsides. The, there are questions of what the political incentives are and what the politicians do with the financial power that uh, money creation gives them. We're reaching the end of the program, and I just want to come back to this question of the creation of money. We've been talking about M0, which is the government creating money, effectively. We've been talking about M4, which includes the banks creating money. And you're saying up to this point that the banks creating money is particularly destructive. But if we shouldn't be allowing, if we aren't allowing governments to create money and we shouldn't be allowing the fractional reserve banking system to create money that way, then where does the money creation happen? Does it need to happen? Or do we have a fixed amount of money in circulation and that's it? And if we have a fixed amount of money in circulation and that's it, then how is there any opportunity for an economy to grow? Well, the, the time that the economy in Britain grew the greatest and we paid off 270% of GDP debt from fighting Napoleon was through the 19th century, where we, had, we were on the gold standard and we had an industrial revolution and the the population what, doubled or it, it grew hugely. But, but wasn't, that, wasn't that the outcome of the Industrial Revolution and the fact that, that yes, we, were, but, we were but, taking a massive leap in terms of the technology that we had available? Yes, and we're taking a, a, a massive leap in terms of the technology now. But we did that under the gold standard. Right? We did that with uh, an amount of money largely fixed. I mean, it... it with mining, it goes up at whatever two or three percent a year, and that's kind of it. And what was the what was the the, the outcome of that? A very very gentle deflation. The nineteenth century was deflationary. So if you had a gold coin, a gold sovereign in the start of the century, and you had the same, you put it under the mattress, or you saved it as a pension, and uh, or you inherited it from your granddad or what have you, you got to the end of the century, it was worth slightly more than it had been 100 years ago. So there was no boom and bust during those years? Oh, there was still boom and bust because it's still fractional reserve banking. We were on 25% fractional reserves. So, so there was where, still... did the, where, did the, where did the extra money come for that? It, well, it, it was pyramided on, you've got, a, you've got a gold reserve and then you've got another 75% on top. So it was pyramided on top of gold. Right, or in the form of notes, or in, in the form in the form of notes, nominally, yes. nom right? and again, because it was eighteen forty four, wasn't it, that the Bank of England monopolised the creation of notes? And I think that I think that rings a bell, or at least in England, you you've still got um, a set amount of gold, and okay, it's pyramided, and that does generate uh, boom and bust, that does generate a business cycle, and that did happen, but it was it was very modest compared to what you've got after those those linkages were were broken. I would still say it's fraudulent. You're still, you're still, 
giving people a paper note that says that you can redeem that paper note in the Bank of England, which means in specie, knowing that only one in, you've only got enough gold and silver to cover one in four claims, right? If you did that, that was, that's fraud, right? If you say to people, I've got, I'll, I'll hold your gold for you, uh, and I will, I will sell you a claim on this amount of gold, and you sell four times as many claims as you have gold, then you're into, you know the film The Producers, where they, they, they create a Broadway flop, and they make money by, by, by selling like 10,000% of it to investors. <laughs> right? And if it doesn't make any money, they don't have to pay out, they can keep the money, right? This is essentially what the Bank of England is doing. Think of the Bank of England, think of, of uh, Bialystok and Bloom. It's the same basic scheme. Uh, and it was operating in the 19th century, but to a, a much smaller degree with some sort of link to gold, 25% fractional reserves. The, the Americans then came along, they had to operate fractional reserves at 40% because no one would trust them. That, that carried on until, until the Vietnam War made it untenable. And then since then, it's based on not very much. Now, where does that go? Because this is the longest time we've ever had in the history of humanity where money printing is based on confidence, it's based, it's based on, on PhD economists, it's based on international institutions creating money from nothing that has no intrinsic value. That has never worked, ever. And what I would suggest to, to you, Mike, is it's not going to work this time. It's just there's a... There's a a much more refined system creating this, and it's global. So you don't have money flowing out of one part of the economy or one part of the globe to a sound money area somewhere else because there is no somewhere else. It's a global financial system. The reason central banking exists is to coordinate the inflationary policies of all the local banks so that they all inflate together because if they don't inflate together, the ones that inflate more, and issue more notes and create more, more money out of thin air, ultimately face more claims from other banks, and they're driven out of business. So the central bank coordinates this. Now we have international banks, Bank of International Settlements, World Bank Organization, all of these sorts of organizations, IMF, they coordinate all the central banks, so all the countries are essentially inflating together. So there's nowhere to go. Apart from, of course, precious metal, because that's something that is a, a currency that is not controlled because they can't print it. it you know, people who are taking physical delivery have something that cannot be created without genuine work going to dig things out of the dirt. Therefore, the supply is limited. Uh, this is why the gold price, the silver price have to be suppressed, because it's, a, it's something that gives lie to the situation. It gives lie to the, to the actual value of the paper pound and the paper dollar. There is always a war between the specie with real value and the paper, which relies on confidence, which relies on institutions, which relies on government, which relies on force, and which relies on debt. I know which one I have more confidence in. Thank you very much, David. We're going to leave it there for now. Now, next week, I think what I'd like to do is to look in a little bit more depth at what you've just discussed, the role of the central banks, uh, the national central banks, the role of the international central banking system at the Bank of International Settlements level. Yes, I'd be delighted to look at these issues. Uh, they are fascinating and in some cases bizarre. Okay, well, thank you very much, David. We will see you next week.
Thank you, Mike.